You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. For the past few weeks now, you've heard me talk about the 10th Collective, which is a new initiative from Revision Path and State of Black Design. Now, we started the collective to pair black designers with companies that are looking for black designers. And with it being September and a lot of companies starting their fiscal years and starting to ramp up hiring again, this is a perfect, perfect time to be a part of the collective. So if you're a black designer and you're looking for your next opportunity, this is for you. It's free to join. All you have to do is fill out a short profile and you're all set. You'll only get contacted by companies when they're ready to talk to you and you can hide your profile from companies or remain completely anonymous. It's a great resource for you whether you're looking for your next opportunity or not and it's just a great resource to have in your back pocket. Head over to the10thcollective.com to join or you can check out the link in the show notes. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and some fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. So what are you waiting for? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with Whitney Robinson, a people-loving product designer and product manager located here in Atlanta, Georgia. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm Whitney Robinson. I'm a product manager slash designer of things. How has the year been going for you so far? I've struggled a little bit with managing home schooling. I have four kids. Ooh. Projects. I know. And <laughs> and they're and they're homeschooled. I'm a new homeschooling parent. And then you know the things that we heard about in the news, right? Like the power dynamics that have shifted in homes as women and have become more of caretakers. And so it's just a lot and like trying not to be a statistic and all that kind of stuff. So I do feel like there's been quite a bit of pushing for me this year. But I will say too, that I've definitely, this has been the year that I realized I'm doing too much mm. and how do I do less and being doing less is okay. Yeah. So the year has been this kind of push and pull and kind of realizing what I need to let go, where I need to just let the ebb and flow of life do its thing. How is that process going? Like learning to let go? I raised by baby boomers you don't let go. You keep pushing, you keep going, you keep going. <laughs> you know, you have to have all the grades and the check marks. And so the letting go has been really hard, but I'm thinking more about, I'm thinking about like, what is my impression on my children? What does that look like? Mm. And I want them to let stuff go. I'm telling them all the time, just let it go. Yeah. And so ooh, it feels real hypocritical when I realize 
but I'm all over here and I'm stressed or trying not to be stressed because I am holding on to this little bit of money because for this one thing when I'm like, just let that go. It'll free your mind up to do all the other things you do. Yeah. I can tell it's a struggle just like, I mean, in general, I think it's a struggle for a lot of people, but from your position, I can see also how it's, it's definitely a struggle when you have sort of homeschooling on top of that too. Yeah. And I'm learning that too. And there's a whole like, there's a reason why there's so many shifts happening right now in like, especially around our culture as people and even the homeschooling. I come from people who are like, mm, your, your kids aren't going to learn any, you know, like mm-hmm. school, a school building is the best place for them. And I'm like kind of countering that, like, like, what does that mean? Right. So that I can't educate my kids or I have to assume that someone else, it has to be someone else. So I'm, and I do see both sides and, but I'm mirroring, right? I'm doing a lot of mirroring and I'm just, anyway, this has been a very hyper intensive, like inner introspection time for me. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, how old are your children? Yeah, they're stair steps. So eight, seven, five, and two. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a dynamic range. I mean, you've got certainly the the oldest that would be, I guess, let's see, eight. You're kind of like fourth grade, I think, something like that. Third, yeah. Yeah, third, fourth grade. Homeschooling them means like grades are a thing, but you are like teaching them higher levels because you're like one-on-one so much. So, But I think if they were in a school system, it'd be like third grade, second grade, kindergarten, and preschool, or not even like maybe daycare or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's a thing. Do you have any any other like big plans you're trying to accomplish this year? So I'm new to the West End. Okay. And it's the blackest place I've been. Well, Durham was black. Durham's <laughs> not black anymore. That's where I'm from. Okay. That's where I'm coming from. I've been in Durham all most of my life. But this is the, probably the blackest place I've lived in a very long time. So that was a, moving here was one big move. And then the next thing I want to do, I mean, I'm in tech and I just feel like I need to have a super opposite like outlet. And so I've been asking around for a space to rent, to have like a plant shop with knickknacks from like estate sales of black home. Okay. Come sit, chill and just be no airs. It just feels good. Smells good. You know, that kind of vibe. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. I would love to do it in the West End if possible. So we'll see. The West End is oh god, the West End is such an interesting neighborhood in Atlanta. One just because of the history, but it's like also one of the few neighborhoods that hasn't been, I guess, completely gentrified yet. That's what I hear. Like like when you think of like Cabbage Town, Reynolds Town, especially if you think of like Bankhead, which is now all quote unquote West Midtown for the most part. The West End has largely managed to keep its, I want to say blackness, but we'll just say it's managed to keep its idiosyncrasies. Like there are (laughs) are certain things about the neighborhood, certainly, which I think in the next five years will change. I think the mall is probably going to be the biggest change. I think it's already been bought out by developers or something, but like, I feel like that's going to be the next. Once the mall changes, that's going to (laughs) change. The whole neighborhood, because I remember living in the West End when they put those condos up on, well, now it's called Lowry, but it used to be called Ashby. But they put these big, huge condos up. I want to say maybe about 
15 years ago or something. And I remember when they first went up and I was like, there's nobody that's going to pay $200,000 to live in the West end. That is ridiculous. <laughs> that will never happen. And people moved there, which surprised me. Cause I'm like, like that CVS wasn't even there. Like there's nothing there. Wow. I think the CVS came when the condos came, but I was like, there's like what Hong Kong city. There used to be a, a place right on the corner called gut busters. I think gut busters then became, Something else. Now it's mangoes, whatever. Nothing on that corner seems to live very long. Mangoes, for some reason, seems to be an outlier. But there's nothing about that downtown West End area that really screams like high commerce, right? Right. Especially not that would support a kind of, quote unquote, live, work, play condo space that was built there. And I remember they had all these little shops right there in the lobby. And then I just saw them all closed down. And I just saw all the the prices going lower and lower and lower. I don't know who lives over there now. But I feel like the West End has largely kind of kept most of the neighborhood pretty black. Although I think if you go maybe like two or three streets back, like People Street back there, there's $500,000 houses back there. Like, it's wild. So the houses on, and again, I'm new. So I've learned though the houses on People Street are kind of highly sought after. Mm-hmm. Um, and being right here at the park, we've noticed just the change in a year. It's a weird conversation too, because we also, I, I use this lightly, but we are changing the pricing of the houses even around us because we bought into the neighborhood when things are kind of high. Yeah. But what we've heard is that two people were like, Oh, y'all are black. <gasps> oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> it's been like, okay, good. Like people won't get mad at us because we know that us moving in did change something. Like yeah. we are with that. Yeah. What are your work days kind of looking like right now? I'm a flower child. So I kind of do things how they come at me. Um, I can pivot very quickly. And that's what my work days look like because the kids are here. I tend to do some instruction with them until about noon. And then I will jump on a call or two. I have some consulting clients right now. And so I will work with them. I'll do some of my side projects. But the kids are always in the mix. So if people are like, what's going on in the background is, hey, I'm homeschooling. I have kids around me constantly. So my work days have really forced me to be not, it's like I'm not in a cubicle and I'm not in a very quiet space. Like, so it has really forced me to be very focused in those moments that I have quiet time, but also teaching my kids to be respectful of other people doing stuff. Like you can't just like run around and rip and run all day. So often while I'm working too, I'm watching them from my window because they're outside a lot. And Mm -hmm. so like, okay, y'all go outside. So I'm very, very much a hybrid pivoting type person. I'm moving around. I don't have one place I sit in. I'm on the front porch. I'm in the yard taking meetings. Like I'm all over the place, but not in a bad way. Like it actually really works for me. Mm -hmm. And I try to shut down by the time I pick the kids up for, or from orchestra and so by then it's like, whatever. And then at night, sometimes I'll do a little bit of work, but I try to really just like, I try to shut my brain down. Yeah. I think that, you know, that skill of being that flexible is something we've all really picked up. I mean, one during the pandemic because of remote work, but we've also just had to pick it up because now we have to do so many things from one place, 
like home is now the office is now the gym is now the schoolhouse is now a number of different things. So it sounds like that's a skill, though, that you're kind of acutely aware of and you're able to tap into it. It's one of the skills that I sell in my consulting. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, who better to, than to do disaster relief on the drop of a dime than someone like me? Like I can think through a lot of things coming at me at once. And that's just, I really enjoy that though. Like if it was too buttoned up, it would feel boring to me. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the Renee. Tell me about the Renee. I love the Renee. (laughs) Not just (laughs) because it's mine, but because it's like solving a really big, juicy problem in the world. We talk about tech. There are so many first world problems in tech. And so the Renee really centered around, it started as an experiment. Why are we still having conversations around Black maternal mortality? Like, really, I'd had four kids at that point and just became hip to it, had no idea. And so at the top of 2019, I said, I, like, I'm a product manager. Like, I know how to solve things quickly. So why aren't we doing the same in maternal health? To me, it just felt real ashy. Like, what's going on? Like, <laughs> are people just talking about it to then move on until it becomes hot topic again? So anyway, like what I would typically do with my team, I did a bit of, I guess, lack of a better term, user experience research, right? Like I went to people who were directly connected to the problem and I started hosting jam sessions And so everyone in the room, for the most part, identified as, I mean, you had to be Black to get in the room, Mm -hmm. but identified as Black women who had experienced pregnancy some way, somehow, whatever that is. Five to seven people. And really, it was, I will facilitate a co-design session. People would share stories, identify collaboratively. They would identify pain points, joy points, solve them, create for them. I mean, absolutely beautiful. And so that gave me goosebumps for many reasons, because that first one, which happened in Durham, was not what I thought it would be. I thought, oh, something very tech enabled is going to come out of this. But actually what came out of it was very spiritual and Hmm. human. And so I stepped away from that, like, I bet the system ain't seeing us at all. If this is the type of solutions that we want, right? Mm-hmm. And so the Renee just became this tour of jam sessions. I don't go into a place unless I'm invited, not because I'm so cool, but because I wanted it. I didn't want it to feel like this outside reaching in approach to looking or having this conversation with locals, right? Like, oh, here's this person from Durham coming to tell us what we need to do. I didn't want it that, to be that way. So everything about the Renee and the jam sessions have been... I guess, lack of a better term, asset informed, right? Like we understand trauma is in this space. So everything looks and feels good. So we wouldn't host them in a conference room. It had to be a vibey spot. It could be in someone's house. Everything is very lean and the overhead is very low. But the impact of these jam sessions were very actionable insight into what Black women were experiencing and asking for. So I went around the country doing this right before the pandemic. I had a queue. There was some press. Fast Company wrote about it, said something like, who is this UX girl or UX person? I forget what they wrote. Um, <laughs> having, having hackathons for 
within maternal health. And then, then that's when my project blew up. And so I had a queue of maybe 16 places. We can go in the country, we go in towns, we can go in cities, right? Like people were just saying, hey, I just want you to come to Milwaukee. And so it goes on the list, sure. And so we went around doing those. Pandemic obviously ended it. So I did a few virtual ones. My last, like really, well, the one that was most people probably know is I did one with Stacey Abrams. And then like kind of decided that I definitely hit a point of saturation, meaning was just hearing the same thing over and over again. And then it became, you know, what is the Renee, which is what you're asking me. So I decided, you know, we, we operate as this lab, right? Like almost research and development. We have our ear to our people. Like we know how to listen and facilitate these kind of spaces, but we can also create what they're asking for, right? Like we can make products or services or experiences, art installations. We can do whatever for what people are asking for. And so... That's the Renee. It's kind of a vibe. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you describe it like that. I mean, first of all, if there's anyone that knows how to make a way out of no way, out of any way, it's black women. Hey. Like point blank period. Hey. And and I love that you refer to the Renee as a lab. Like it's a space for discovery, for experimentation, for fleshing out hypotheses and things like this. Like you're not explicitly calling it like a company or or something that may have specific deliverables. I love that it's it's a lab, it's a place to experiment. Absolutely. And I like we don't talk disparate. Like I know I mentioned disparities, but that was how I kind of came to like, oh, this is a problem. But we don't do like, oh, y'all gonna just die, right? Like we hear that so much that is actually a tool that can be used against us. Right. Mm-hmm. That goes into, again, why we don't, like everything we do feels, I tell people, like, if you think about the soul train and mm-hmm. what it's our people in its time, that's what I want the Renee to be, is that people can look to us and f- like as this kind of cultural boom within maternal health, because maternal health sounds boring. It doesn't sound, it doesn't sound sexy at all, but what if the Renee has an impact like soul train? And kind of creates these offsprings all over the country, right? There were like many soul trains, even in my whole town, hometown. And it's just putting out Black culture and maternal health. Mm. And that's why I get goosebumps when I talk about this, because I don't know everything. And even though I'm a mother of four, I've learned very quickly that my experience, I've had home burns. Like my experience is very unique to me. And watching people design and experience with strangers shows why it's important for black folks to be at the helm of their healthcare. Yeah. It just is a different vibe than traditional healthcare or the system. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, and, and I'm, I'm speaking broadly here for like black people in the United States. I imagine this may be different in other countries where listeners might be at, but like here in the U S I mean, Black people do kind of have this mistrust of the medical system of healthcare. Whether you think about something like Henrietta Lacks, or you think about honestly, even Serena Williams, like we're talking right around the time where she's, you know, speaking of retiring, and she's been very public about the issues that she's had to go through 
with her health, with, you know, having her daughter and everything. And social media has also really helped to elevate a lot of experiences of black women, black people in general, but black women specifically around healthcare issues and how we are different. Black women are different. Black people are different. Even now to the point where you're just starting to see black medical illustrations, like it's 2022. That's what I'm saying. And this is like a crazy laugh, not like a funny. Like, <laughs> we are, like, for me, I have skin in the game, right? Yeah. I have children that I can either say, oh, well, pray and I hope that the system you enter into will be better. Now, mm-hmm. I, I'm a believer in prayer, but I mean, like, I can't sit and I personally, Whitney, like, my, this, I believe this is connected to my life's work. I feel very uncomfortable waiting or hoping that someone else will fix this thing. And it's also why I say to people, I'm not interested in dismantling what's out there right now. Because even if I was told, hey, let's say, I don't know, the president was like, Whitney, you're now over healthcare, change it. My feedback would be, yeah, but it's still going to have essence of the experimentation on my people. Right. Like we Mm -hmm. the conversations we're having right now are because the system was absolutely designed to do what it's doing. And that's why it's working the way it's working. I would love black people can can and I've seen it design their own quote unquote system. And I don't even know if we know what that looks like because it feels like it would be a daunting task. But I have seen it happen in small spaces I mean, no oversight, no red tape. Oh, Whitney, we need grants. Oh, we, none of that, right? Mm-hmm. Get food, make people feel welcome, warm, see them as human and give them space to share. You'd be amazed at the commonalities from one part of the U.S. to the other. It's so hard to talk about without being in it and watching it happen and say, wow, this is like, this is the connectedness of Black folks. It's yeah. really beautiful. How has the Renee changed since you found it? You mentioned like you've shifted to these virtual sessions, but are there other ways that it's changed? Yeah. So I actually, like I said, it was just an experiment to see what would happen. There have been so many iterations of it. So the jam sessions led to, like I created a web application using no code tools because who has the time? <laughs> <laughs> like one of the things I heard a lot was, Support, support how, like, no matter where I birth, how I birth, if we can feel supported, it's a game changer, right? And so I learned from all of these conversations what a good support system looks like. So we put a web application out in the world for people to use to answer what Black women were asking for. Like, I want to feel supported and I want to know how to build good support systems. Another thing that has changed, especially during the pandemic, as healthcare has definitely changed. A lot of virtual like things have come to the forefront. Mm-hmm. Quite a few university-based hospital systems have reached out to us to say, hey, help us solve our Black problem. <laughs> and, <laughs> and tokenize, right? Like, and I know it's, it's a thing. And so I never saw that coming. I did not. I really went into this thinking like, oh, purely this will be some kind of tech thing, not maybe totally tech, but um, did not see the opportunity to actually work with healthcare systems. So I've collaborated with MIT, 
UCSF aware, and a wearable technology company. I've collaborated and have had conversations with Penn, Duke, there's several. And so what it has now, I'm on this, I'm on edge a little bit because when you put something out there, very optimistic about what Black folks can do, the delivery, when these kind of players are coming in, mm-hmm. your delivery has to be buttoned up and so sharp. And that was, that's going back to like beginning of our conversation. That's not like very buttoned up. It's not really my style, mm-hmm. but I am having to think about you know what? I want to be as big as Google. I want whole municipalities and employers and whatever who are like, you know, we really are invested in seeing our Black mothers and Black parents have better experiences, help us to create whatever we need to internally to do that. I want the Renee to do that. And so I think during these last couple of years, especially, I've gotten a bigger picture. I want to think about the future and not just the present. I want to think, what do I see? How do we see a Black designed and led maternal space in the future? And what does it look like to to then build based on what we see in the future? Let's go more into that. Like, What does design within kind of maternal health care, reproductive justice, like what does that look like? Like paint a picture. Yeah, it looks slow. By slow, I mean, it's not really built on efficiency. And so we're in a system right now that is graded, or we're not in a system, but healthcare, right? In many ways. Now, I have to be clear, I'm not a medical provider, but just working in the system and with people in the system and having conversations. We're looking at a system that is built on efficiency and their bottom line, whereas where we're going will feel more like tender love and care. It will feel like, oh, you just spent two hours with me to talk about my dog and now we can get into my healthcare, right? Like people want to feel the connection and the recall and the consistency with providers. So for instance, one of the challenges in kind of, I guess, traditional maternal health is that you may not always have the same doctor, but when you're talking to black folks and what feels safe, it's a consistency of care. It's, Oh, I've had this person kind of walk with me Mm -hmm. throughout a process. I think we will begin to look more like the midwifery. Honestly, like we talk about like, Oh, we want to go back to the good old days. Mm-hmm. But this is a space that I do think the future probably will look more like what we used to do. So that's why I said slow it will feel like consistent. It will feel consistent, like what a midwife would do. They are your person. Your appointments are hours long. You can call, text whenever you need to. They come to you. It feels like a whole wraparound care. It is high touch. The success is you having a good experience. Your outcome, sometimes you can't gauge, right? But what if success is the experience of the person? And that's what I believe Black folks are asking for. I want you to care about not just saving me and my child, right? I want you to care about my experience throughout from beginning to end. Think of it as like a flow, right? Like all of the touch points in between, are intentional. So that's where we're going. And that's what I want to help build. I mean, just hearing you 
talk about this sounds, I can't quite put it into words. It's a very warm feeling. Like that's what you want to have. Like if you're, if you're not feeling well, if you're sick or something, you want that kind of like convalescent sort of care. And I think, you know, certainly our current system doesn't, doesn't work that way. It's very cold and inefficient in many ways. You know, we're not even talking about like insurance and stuff, but yeah, I like that slow, I guess, feeling or, or that slow experience that you mentioned. It's more about, I guess, taking the time, building that rapport and making sure that people have a good experience. It's not just about the care. It's about the experience with the care also. Definitely. And I, I do think it's colorful. You know, just think about, again, going into a hospital or something, very harsh, bright lights, white walls, white lab coats. When I had, was having my first home birth, my grandmother told me, you know, that's beneath you as a black educated woman to do that. But she was born at home. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is an intergenerational conversation also, because let's be honest. There's a little bit of keeping up with the Joneses that happened to us. Oh, white women are doing this. So we should do this. Oh, that's they're saying it's safe. And so we should that's the safest place for us. And and then there's this spiral. And so my grandmother saying that to me with all of her sass made me realize, too, oh, this is not just one sided. Like, oh, we can't just look at hospitals and the providers. But this is generational. So many of the conversations too around birth experiences of older generations were covered in shame. And so those things were not shared. And so this new or this system that is going back to really the things that, that granny midwives and doulas do constantly, it's a part of their service. We are basically going to that. That's what I would love to see because I believe I'm banking on that being the care that people are asking for. That people want. What other like kinds of projects are you working on? Like you have the Renee. Before we started recording, you mentioned you're also doing something called Product Groove as well. Like what other projects are you working on? Yeah, just know like I grew up on funk. I like <laughs> my first concert was James Brown. Like it is a very heavy thread in my life with my yeah you know, the way I was raised by my parents, and so Product Groove really like I wish someone could do like a um, an imagery you know a record of a record for it like it the imagery in my mind is we have so many I have worked with so many first time or non-technical founders of color specifically who have an idea and they go and hire a dev shop and then by the time they hire me I'm like oh lord (laughs) (laughs) you about to like had to refinance your whole house to like, just to like pivot. So product groove is just a natural kind of iteration of the work that I've been doing with founders and companies. I love to just focus on non-technical and first time founders of color and helping them build strategy. So it's a support coaching product strategy type thing I mean, to be corny, it's helping you get into a groove, right? Yeah. Like it's it's helping you understand, you know, like who's your customer? And I have an idea, but should I really build something on it? Or is, is it just good to me, right? Like we have, you know, that happens a lot. People discover a problem, but really they just, they're the only one that cares about it. I want to help founders not make costly mistakes. 
And so it will be in cohort style, like group sessions, a couple times a month. And I, I'm definitely asking people, I ask people to be committed to it financially and with their time, because what I am really good at is helping people build strategy, roadmaps, understand their people, understand research, things like that. Let's kind of switch up a little bit, like switch gears here. I want to learn more about kind of your origin story, some of which I know because we've actually had your sister on the show before, but we can talk about that. But tell me about where you grew up and like, what was your childhood like? Yeah, I grew up in the country in the sticks where the neighbors, you couldn't see them. I grew up playing outside all day, which is why I raised my kids the same way. No matter the weather, they're outside. So I explored a lot. I was bored a lot. My sisters were my best friends. And two, because my mom was like, you go to school, you come home. <laughs> like, <you know>? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. And so my parents played records all the time. People came to our house to have for drinks. And all. so I just remember growing up, it was a very funky, funky environment. And so... My parents being very stylish people with high standards and also just really hard workers. I didn't realize, I didn't think of myself in lack. And Mm -hmm. so, and that's not even just monetary. I knew that I could think through anything. I wasn't taught to fight like fist fight or anything. I was taught if you can think through this, you can get through it, period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've, Went to a very rural country high school in North Carolina. And then I ended up at Duke. Actually, let me back up. I ended up at Carnegie Mellon for pre-college, like two pre-college programs. I think that's when I realized, oh, you a nerd. And I was doing doing gaming and stuff back in like, I don't know, 20, gosh, before I went to college. So early 2000. And then went to Duke, which was a shock. Very, it was a culture shock to me. How so? I was top of my class in high school, but I came to Duke feeling like the bottom. Mm. And, you know, imagine a place where there's an academic rigor and not that many Black folks. And then I chose computer science. So I was the only, 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 only. Yeah. I always said that if I went back to Duke and I gave feedback, I would, I would, maybe it's in the past and just let it go, but. There was so much kind of leaving, so much of the work was team-based in computer science. And I was left out sometimes. Like people would just be meeting and I let me know. I was reprimanded for things. I was like, wait, but I didn't, like, how are y'all doing that? (laughs) But I tried so, 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 so hard. So would I do Duke again? Yes. But I think I would realize there is a fight in me that I did not realize. And so, but the good thing about Duke is I actually started in VR and I built, mm. Duke had this six-sided cube called the die. Mm-hmm. And if you enter it in and you are in an immersive space. And I got, I start, so I started doing game design and character and asset design in 3D. And that was fun. And so I created a simulation of course, it was a runway with a dude in an afro and bell bottoms. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a thread in my life. But you go in, you walked in, and you saw this guy walk away from you. He turned around, he came back, his changed clothes, his clothes changed. And so Duke really did, though, 
pushed some of the envelope for me when it came to like the way that I approach things, the look and feel and the vibe. I also walked around with a fro. I was one of the only people that was wearing a natural, right? And mm. I wore bell bottoms. I was just like a nerdy person. And I mean, was that like uncommon on Duke's campus? I think so, because I think um, quite, especially in the black population, I think people came from so many other cities and like New York, Atlanta, right? I'm like a Southern girl, like raising the sticks. Mm-hmm. And so I do think there is a bit of difference. I don't think it was like people were pointing at me or making me feel bad about it, but I do think I kind of. You just felt different. Yeah. I felt different. Yeah. I think I brought a different type of energy. I know exactly what you're talking about. I felt that way when I went to Morehouse. Like, mm-hmm. I too am from the sticks. I'm from Selma, Alabama. And when I first got to Morehouse, I did a pre college thing too, like right like the summer before graduation and it was so funny that that summer because first of all i couldn't leave selma fast enough i was like oh it starts in june i graduated late may let's go like i was ready to go there was that aspect of it but also i graduated like top of my class in high school and then i get to morehouse and it's like meeting at least in my program meeting like 20 other people that are just like me at least in that way where they were like top of their class where they're at and now they come here and it's from all over the country in some cases i don't think it was in our program it was maybe in like a an adjacent program because they put us in a dorm with i think two other programs so we all kind of like co-mingled with each other but there were people there from other countries that i had only heard about in school like i had never known about meeting people from the virgin islands or from a country in africa or from haiti but they were there and it's like, oh, I'm learning about y'all like in person and stuff like that. You know, I know what you mean about that kind of like weird country bumpkin thing. Like I had a fro in college. And what was interesting for me is like I came in and because Morehouse is an all male school, like my mom is a seamstress and my grandmother is a seamstress. So they taught me how to sew and do everything from like a really early age. So when I came in already knowing like how to wash clothes how to iron, how to like fix a button, how to like sew a hole in a sock. That was like a weird opportunity for me to get to know other people in the program because like something would happen and they wouldn't know what to do. Like, oh, I got I got a hole in my sock. Or, oh, I lost a button. I was like, I can sew that back on. Oh, you don't know how to iron? I can do that. I can show you how to do that. Or they wash all their clothes and they all come out like pink or something like that. I was like, oh, no, you got to separate. You got to see, you can't, you can't put the whole box of laundry detergent in there. You have to just put like a scoop or something, you know, <laughs> like teaching them how to read the the tags on the, on the laundry. And they're like, how do you know this stuff? I'm like, y'all didn't take home ec? They didn't take home ec. But it, it ended up that sort of weakness, I guess, at least what I perceived as a weakness ended up being a strength. Cause then I ended up getting to know other people. And like, I felt like I was more supposed to be there as opposed to just kind of like, landing there because of my grades you know what I mean mm-hmm. yeah I do know what you mean and I I mean when I graduated ooh, I had a sigh of relief because I I just felt like I graduated by the skin of my teeth <laughs> uh, but now like years years later almost 15 years later after graduation the thing that Duke does get you is in the door it's almost like you sacrifice your mental health to get <laughs> to the door and it feels and for me it feels like the tech world, like there are some people that graduated with me that were early Facebook. Yeah. 
we were those people. And so I think went from tech bro culture for me to tech bro culture. (laughs) Like I knew how to, I really knew how to navigate it when I graduated. And you've held a number of product roles at some pretty well-known tech companies. You were at Abstract for a while. You were at Higher Runner, you know, just to name two of them. But you've also kind of always had your own entrepreneurial ventures on the side as well. Like you had Freshly Given, you had Charles and Whitney. Why was it important to kind of always have like something on the side like that? Yeah, I like to think about anytime I took a full-time gig, that was my, that was the side. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) The reason why I say that is because I am an entrepreneur, like at my heart. And sometimes my husband and I are like, okay, look, we got to pay some bills around here. We have (laughs) one, two, three, four kids. (laughs) Just get a job. (laughs) So he or I would do that. We bounced and done that over the years. Yeah. And, but the thread again has always been, I mean, if you look at my LinkedIn, like I've basically worked for myself for the majority of my career and have, have jumped on other teams or consulted with other teams throughout that time. Freshly Given was the only one that was way left field. That was a leather. I found discarded leather in like a country town in North Carolina and decided like, why would people throw away leather? What if we can reintroduce it back into, we can reintroduce leather back into the, into commerce. Right. And Mm -hmm. so that was that project. And that lasted for a while. And that was really fun until I started having kids. One day I'll pick it back up. It'll always be there. It'll always be there. And that's why I'm like, that's, we talked about this at the beginning. That's why I'm okay I'm becoming more okay with letting stuff go, knowing that life is short, but there's also this long game, right? Like I get up in five years and maybe I'll do it even better or maybe it doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. Like I be picking it back up and I put it down for whatever reason and that's okay too. That's the good thing about having the, the freedom to do that, you know, but also it just adds to like your overall body of work. You've done this thing, you've done it for a certain amount of years, and you've decided not to do it anymore, and people may feel some kind of way about it. But if you want to pick it up later, you can. And if you don't, you don't, because you know that you have the capacity to always come up with something new. Absolutely. Yeah. How have you sort of built your confidence over the years as a creative professional? A lot of talking to myself in the mirror, honestly. A lot of prayer, a lot of realizing that people have been here before. I have to be careful and maybe other millennials can relate. I have to be careful because we do live in a time where people are, oh, I have an idea. I'm putting it out there. I'm making millions of dollars. You all can do that too. It is okay for just in my confidence to realize, Whitney, oh, you're wrong. That's okay. Or again, people have done this before. It sounds cliche, but you stand on the shoulders of so many people who are now cheering you on. When you feel like you're the only person doing something, for me, it feels like, woo, daunting. But when I look at myself as a byproduct of hundreds of generations of people, then I'm really arriving on the scene equipped. Mm. I'm not lacking. I'm not, I'm not a disparity. I'm not what other folks say I am, 
other folks who don't I, who don't identify like me or whatever. I am who all these folks who came before me said I am. I am the combination of their work and their prayers and their rest or their lack thereof. I have to have those moments with myself because I do it a lot as a mother too. Oh, you're just not doing it well. Like that's the craziest thing to think that as a mother, I'm not doing well when I give it, I don't want to give it my all because then I'll be burned out. (laughs) I I give it a really good effort daily. And so, yeah, it's those moments where I realize, oh, Whitney, you're doing okay. You're good. <laughs> that just gave me goosebumps talking about that kind of, like, I show up on the scene prepared. That just gave me goosebumps. Because you're right. I mean, so much of what we do is, at least I think now is, as, you know, adults working now, it is the byproduct of our parents, our grandparents, other people in our community praying for us, pushing us on, supporting us. Like we have what we, ha- what we need to succeed. And so like, even sometimes when that imposter syndrome can creep up, like it's just good to sort of have that, to know that, like you have that conviction, you know, that you know that you're prepared. Oh God, that, that, ooh, that really, that really got to me. I do think that as we have a lot of conversations around who, being about being woke and the things that were pressed upon us about ourselves that were not true, right? When we first arrived in the U.S., how much of that is this continual thread in our lives? And again, that's why I like to look at that and say, oh, who told you that you aren't supposed to be here? Mm-hmm. Who told you that? Think about where that came from and keep moving forward. What keeps you motivated to move forward these days? I'm really, really excited about the future. Like when I look at my kids and I see even their ability to create very beautiful things. Like my children love snakes. I am very afraid of snakes, Mm -hmm. but they love snakes. They pick them up in our yard now that they know how to identify them. And they just fiddling. Like imagine (laughs) the... It's great. They are frolicking with snakes all the time. Even I only have one girl, the rest of them are boys. And even, you know, you may have an assumption that she would be, she's a ringleader. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm really optimistic about it because I can defer my fear so that these little folks can pass me at just the age that they are right now. They're already doing more than I could even possibly think I would be doing. I have an opportunity not only to raise a generation of people, but at, in my quiet time, I do see us winning. I see Black people winning. And I do like the shift around our bodies, our minds, our culture that we are collectively happening. Because these are the things we look back on and say, ooh, that generation of people did what we are living, we are able to do now. Yeah. It's funny. I I talk about that sometimes with my friends about like, how like we'll say like, we don't really feel like sometimes we're adults or like we're kind of adulting or whatever. And it's like, we're the adults now. Like we're the ones that are doing, it's funny. Like I think about, and I don't mean this in a, in a lofty way, but I'll just kind of use the show as an example. Like when revision path got put into the Smithsonian in 2019, 
I was like, I was dumbfounded that it happened partially because I had been working so hard. Like I had really been working on it since 2015. That's a whole other story, but it happened. And then like the very next day at work, like my boss, or he was the CEO of the startup I was working at, this white dude, just like dressed me, gave me the worst professional dressing down I've had in my career. I was just like at the top of like, I was like, I feel like I reached a career high and now you're like, oh, let me shoot him down to this point. And it was funny because in the time that it happened initially, I didn't even really celebrate it. Like it happened in June or July, I think, of 2019. And like I never really like got a chance to celebrate it. And then I went to Harvard in October for Black and Design, the Black and Design conference that they have there every other year. And like that felt like my victory lap go into that and like so many people that had seen me work on this throughout the years and had seen me do it that were just like you know you're doing a good job congratulations like how can we help out that sort of thing that's just like a night and day kind of experience I don't know if what I said even related to what you just said but for some reason when you (laughs) when you mentioned that that came to mind like right away of like and I'm not just you know me but more so we are now in the point where we're making the history. We're doing the historical things. Like, and it may seem like a day-to-day thing, but like people are gonna look back on what we've done in like 2070 and be like, wow, this kind of stuff was happening back then. So that sort of it helps me to think that the work that I'm doing is not in a vacuum, but that it's part of a continuum. Yeah, and I like to call them cornerstones. I think that those moments, uh, whether they're great or not, are cornerstones for our lives, right? And so we will, and by cornerstone, I mean, they often have some kind of inflection point. Mm -hmm. And that is, but then collectively your entire life, like for you, for instance, Maurice, your entire life is a cornerstone in the history of this country, your family. And so I think that if we look about it, look at it that way, it do, it's the day-to-day nuances you realize are collectively coming together to do a thing. Yeah. And like even just like one of the things I am working on right now related to the Renee is around is this kind of photo journalistic tour of the South capturing black women in spaces of thriving so that our cornerstone during this pandemic, especially, isn't they were dying more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, you see these people in, I don't know, Alabama are thriving and they black, right? Mm-hmm. Like these are, the, these are the things that we have to, that I do think about in my life for these ups and downs. At this stage of where you're at in like your career and in life, how do you define success? That is ever-changing. But I would say, yes, right now, if it reduces my stress levels, it is successful. (laughs) (laughs) If I, if I don't have an adverse reaction to it, so meaning I feel real good about it, not that it's easy, but it doesn't feel like it's weighing heavy on me in a unnecessarily, and then, then I consider that success. So at this point, even projects that I join or people that I help, 
if I get that initial inkling of, mm, girl, this ain't it, I walk away and that feels like success. It's listening and acting immediately without the fear of, ooh, but don't you need that? Or what mm-hmm. if, what if I am not a fearful person? And so I, I need to remember that my angle in life is again, that I'm not behind the eight ball, that it's, I am a person who will attract many opportunities, but not all of them are for me. And the things that are successful or lead to success for me are the things that create a space where Whitney can live and feel free within myself, within my community, uh, within my family, all of those things. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what kind of work do you want to be doing? I want to still be in this in the maternal health space for sure. And by then, in five years, I actually the analogy that I tell people is like this: going back to the Soul Train. Like, if we get to the place where people see the pregnancy and everything at the beginning and the end as like a Soul Train line, and we're all supporting each other as one person goes down. That's where I want it. Like if we, our narrative shift gets to that point, oh my God, that would be incredible. But I want to continue to be in this maternal health space. I want providers, folks to look at us as a force. And so I'm sticking with this for a while. I want it to be creative. I want to, I want to dibble and dabble in the arts, be creative, do new things that people just did not expect could come out of this space for us. So that's five years. That's what my career, I, I want, I want the Renee to be my, my full-time, full-time. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you and your work and everything? Where can they find that online? Yeah, I'm obviously on LinkedIn, <laughs> which is Whitney Robinson. Right now I have red lips and a fro on my profile pic. <laughs> and then the Renee. And you can email me about anything at the Renee because I absolutely love email. But the Renee is the, so T-H-E dash Renee. That's R-E-N-E-E dot com. So, and you can find me at Whitney at the dash Renee dot com. But the website is the dash Renee dot com. Sounds good. Well, Whitney Robinson, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Since we've connected back in, what was that, 2018, 2018, when we met us at, uh, at XOXO, I've always felt like you've had this, there's this presence about you. And I think people have to maybe, I hope they can feel it from the interview, but certainly when I first met you in person, you have this like presence that like the ancestors are walking with you in everything that you're doing. And like, even this this work that you're doing around maternal health care, hearing you talk about it with such passion and conviction, like I'm so excited to see what you do in the future with this. I want to walk with you as you, as you make this happen, because I really feel like you're on the right side of something here. And um, I hope that people, when they listen to this interview, they can feel that because I certainly do. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for those words. And I'm, very appreciative of this opportunity. Big, big thanks to Whitney Robinson. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Whitney and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. 
Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are provided by Brevity and Wit. This episode of Revision Path is also brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? You know, we'd love to hear from you, especially on social media. So talk to us. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on either Apple Podcasts, on Amazon Music, or on Spotify. The more people you tell about the show, the bigger we become. And the further we can extend our reach to talk to black designers, developers, artists, and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.